0: Welcome to the Calvary Chapel, Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Amen. Good morning. How are you guys? Good, man. <laughs> Oh, Donald P., always here. love you, brother. So glad that you guys are here. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 8. In the mornings, uh, about 7.30, everybody that's serving that is here at that time, we always kind of circle up and we pray, talk through any uh, changes, any kind of focus that we have, whatever it might be. And this morning when we were circled up, I said, guys, it's Revelation 8. We're walking into the first four trumpets. It's hellfire and brimstone. I don't know how to, like, sugarcoat this. It is is what it is, okay? So even in this really difficult passages, I think if we take our time, walk through it well, we will see uh, the character of God uh, in a clear way. So Revelation chapter 8, again, just walking through what we're calling our letter from Patmos study um, and really trying to look at it, um, I don't want to say in the correct way, but I want to say that, you know what I mean? But look at it with a different light because a lot of times every time you hear about a preaching or a teaching through Revelation, you know, we always want to go straight to the Antichrist. We want to go straight to the mark of the beast. We want to go straight to all of the wrath and all the destruction and all this that's going to be, you know, poured out. But what we have to remember, go clear back to the very beginning of Revelation. The first thing that says it's a revelation of Jesus. It is always about Jesus. And even uh, a couple of the pastors thought I was kind of crazy the very first Sunday where I said, you know, the book of Revelation is a book of hope and encouragement to us as the believer. And it's like, have you read that? (laughs) A couple times, you know. Um, But as we're walking through it, we really do get to see the heart of God. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, Revelation chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about a half an hour. That was five seconds, and that felt super awkward, right? Go against every kind of public speaking, never give long, dull moments of silence. And to think about that, that we read in, in Revelation, we read in Isaiah that there are cherubim and seraphim who are crying out before the throne of God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, just like what we sang. And they have not stopped that. And the moment that Jesus has the scroll with the seven seals, once he gets to the last one and he breaks that one open and he opens that seventh seal, silence. And there honestly should be a silence even in our heart and our minds as we are reading this. That we were talking in our college life group and, I, uh, and somebody brought up the idea of You know, when you're watching a TV show, let it be NCIS or any of those, like those are fictional stories kind of rooted in reality. Maybe that possibly could happen. But as we're studying Revelation, that these are real events, that this will come to pass. And there needs to be almost a a little bit of a silence, that sombering understanding that the moment that this starts, it's not gonna stop. That God is gonna bring about the fullness of his will, his plan on earth. And even, even for us as the church this morning to study this, to walk through this, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about um, where we'll be, but there should be a silence even in our hearts and minds about that. This is very serious, and it should encourage us, but also challenge us that as we read and study this and, and we're hearing you know, ratios, a fourth and a third and this and these and groups of people that you know, every, every person has a name and every name has a story and every story matters to God and, and some people will be walking through this and, and, and the true reality that there could be people that we know and love that we are reading the events that they will be walking through and it should challenge us as believers those that have put our faith and our trust in Christ, and not just theologically, but practically, where the rubber meets the road, that it really should motivate and change in us, that we can't just read and study this and then just go back to our normal job as ever, you know, just like we've always had. Like, it should create in us a marked difference. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and the seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God in the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Now when the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them, the first angel blew his trumpet. And there was followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. And a third of the waters became wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And so as we are walking through this seven-year period that Daniel gives us kind of some understanding about, this seven-year period called the tribulation, we see God pouring out his wrath, but he's doing it in a very orchestrated way, a very timely way mannered, like it might seem like chaos on the earth, but to the will of God, it's very orchestrated and controlled. Because and to think about it, like if, if he wanted to, he could pour out all the seals, all the trumpets, all the bowls that we haven't talked about yet, absolutely decimate the earth, and he would not lose any part of his character. But he doesn't. And there is a reason for him orchestrating it this way. There's a reason for not just how he's pouring out his wrath, but even the restriction that he is placing upon himself and the manner in which he is doing it. And we see it kind of in three main waves. Again, the seals, then we're in the trumpets right now this morning, finish up the other couple uh, next week, and then uh, later we'll get to the bowls. And so we see these three waves of God's wrath. And if you remember those kind of like Russian dolls that like nest within themselves, right? Or if you're not Russian, I always love when you go to like a family Christmas thing or you hand a big old gift to someone and they open it up only to open up the box and they find another wrapped gift, and they have to open that one to find only another wrapped gift. And then they get really irritated, annoyed, because by the time they have this big gift, it's down to this like, really small, measly presence, right? So the real gift is just watching their agony. They're like, that's just what I wanted to give myself to watch you suffer, right? And so these, these waves of God's wrath are resting and nesting within themselves. What we see is through the seven seals, once we get to the seventh, and that one is opened up, that's the seven trumpets. And then once we get to the seventh trumpet and it is opened or the trumpet is blown, we see the seven bowls or vial of God's wrath. And we see this, again, very orchestrated, time away, not chaotic unto the Lord because this is his will, this is him finishing up the events of human history. And some of this is kind of uh, very uh, different for us as we are going to walk through. Again, so we see the silence in heaven. You know, that, that would be, you know, we, we think of like the praise that is continuously going, but the moment that Jesus breaks that seal, nothing. And there's silence. And it should be a sombering or even a sober reminder of the severity of what is going on. And this is just the seventh seal. We still have two more full waves of God's wrath that he's gonna pour out. And, and we are getting a picture, like we're kinda almost in the throne room with God. We are seeing the events there. Again, are they figurative, literal, you know, uh, symbolism? Well, they're rooted in reality. And just like the events, so we're watching that in the throne room, but then we see the, we see the cause and then we see the effect of what's gonna be on earth. So in the throne room, we see an angel roll up with a little bugle, a little doo-doo-doo-doo. There, that's the most musical I'll ever get for you right there. You know, vocally, that's, that's it, that's my, that's my capacity. We see that in heaven, but then when we look to the earth and John describes it, we see something totally different. And again, is it figurative, is it literal? literally symbolic? It's rooted in reality. And that's what's kind of hard. We have to understand that this is real events for some people. That this isn't like, ah, oh, that might happen. And you know, some of us have that uh, eschatological es- eschatology, those end time views. That it all just pan out. You know, oh God, it'll just all pan out His way. True, it will pan out God's way. He is absolutely sovereign in control, and He has given us revelation of what that is, so that we could walk, not in ignorance, but we can walk with wisdom. And there's even gonna be some parts of this that we're not given, like, we'll get to it later, but God says, not in his word that I'll reveal it here, but he says, at that time, I'll give you wisdom in that moment so that you know. And that's very unique to it, because he wants us to walk in wisdom, not to walk in ignorance. You know, and it's kinda, I'll be honest, a few people when they found out we're gonna walk through Revelation, they were like, are you you sure about that? Like, well, it it is one of the books of the Bible, you know, and you know, all scripture is profitable, so yeah, we're gonna walk through that, and they're like, whew, you know, and and to be honest, there's probably even some moments that I was even thinking that, like, do I really wanna walk through Revelation? Like, you know, leading up to Christmas, open up your Bible, Revelation, death everywhere, (laughs) you know. Little baby in the manger, here we go, like, thinking through some of those. But honestly, a a few people that have really been open and honest with me to say, you know, at the beginning I was very hesitant. But what I found each week is this has been a great encouragement for us as the church. But at the same time, it is a very sombering, sobering reminder of God's heart, and we see him through this. And so one of the things that's unique about this is if you continue on, we see these seven angels that roll up and then there's another angel, an eighth angel in a sense. And he came and he's gonna stand, verse three, at the altar with a golden censer and he was given much incense to offer with prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. You know, and that's unique because there's nowhere else in the New Testament that is commanding us as the church to give incense, right? Like we, we have no altar of incense up here. You know, it's not like we want Sean to come up, do some hosting, tell you to sign up for a Life Group and then come over here and throw some incense on the altar, let the smoke rise up, and you know, that's not commanded for us. And that can be very kind of obscure a little bit to us and we have to understand there's a reason for that. This wasn't written to a Gentile audience. Why? It was written to a Jewish audience. Because where's the church gonna be? And some of these Jewish uh, aspects, concepts, they would absolutely understand. So if you looked at a Jewish person and you asked them, hey, altar of incense, give me the 411 on that. Oh yeah, absolutely, we'll let you know. So let's do a little Jewish uh, history class here. So if you go back to Exodus and you wanna study the tabernacle, which was the tent that they could take apart and put back up and they were following God and then you could fast forward in Israel's history and get to the temple where you know uh, Solomon built God's temple. Both of those, tabernacle or temple, these are items that were in there. So we're gonna use our church here as the example. So there was kind of three layers to the Jewish tabernacle or temple, right? So the outer layer was in the outdoors and that was the courtyard. So like that's for us and our property here, you know, like the the road kind of lines it out. All the trees over here that you see, those are the church's trees. We can do whatever we want with our trees, right? So imagine if we built a wall around that. Everything outside of the building, but inside that wall would be the temple courtyard, we'll say right and there were certain things that were outdoors there like the altar of sacrifice where they'd burn the burnt offering so you throw a whole bowl up on some fire and had a really nice smoker you know what i mean you hit it with a good rub and low and slow <laughs> nice and tender right jewish people love a good brisket let's go so why so glad i'm adopted into this family and then you would walk into the building and then then you have kind of the foyer space we'll call it and that's going to be the holy place and there were three main articles that were in there and you can study these in Exodus and they all point to Jesus. All of the articles of the temple and the tabernacle point to Jesus. So you walk into that holy place and what do we see? Three main things. You got the table of showbread. Just touches my heart, right? I'm a, I'm a carbohydrate kind of guy. And so I love bread. And like the Lord wants me to have bread and I love that about him. So you'd walk in and the holy place is a bakery. It's like, amen, right? You go to serendipity, you walk into the holy place of the bakery, and you get some of that sourdough. It's like, you just feel close to the Lord, amen. (laughs) And so there was the table of showbread, and we understand Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. And then you look over on the other side of the room, and this was the big candlestick, the menorah that was giving lights, and Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And so we have all these articles that are pointing to Jesus, and then there was one more thing, the altar of incense. It was about two cubit high, which is a standard measurement that we all use today, right? A couple cubits, of course. It's about 20 inches per cubit, so maybe just uh, three feet, maybe maybe 60 inches. So it was two cubits high, and it was a cubit by a cubit, right? And they would every the priest was commanded every morning. When the sun rise and every sun the high priest, they would have to go in and they would put incense on the altar and burn that and the, and the smoke would rise up. And there was reasons for that, right? Because even the incense that they burned on that altar of incense, that was a very specific recipe. Like if you're just at home as the priest and you're like, oh, I forgot the cinnamon or whatever it is we're supposed to burn and, and you just grabbed whatever from home, like the Lord's going to kill you for that dead honest. You, you had to have a very specific incense that, again, Exodus tells the priest exactly what should be burned there. Nor can you, if you're that priest burning some incense, and be like, you know what, this smells really nice. My wife would love a little bag of this that she could just kind of put in the house and just diffuse it out there. She'll just, no, God will kill you for that too. Because this is his incense. It is holy. It is set apart. It is only for the tabernacle or the temple. It is only for the altar of incense. And so how did he light the fire? Well, easy. The priest had a Zippo lighter on him at any time, ready to go, right? No, he would walk outside in the courtyard, go to the altar of sacrifice, and bring the fire in and light the altar of incense. And that would be burning day and night. And then one time a year, so on this cubit by cubit, at the very top of it, at each corner was a horn, and it was made of acacia wood. It was covered in gold, even had rings on it and, and gold acacia wood poles. And that's how you carried it, almost like the Ark of the Covenant because you, you don't want to touch that stuff. <laughs> and those horns, once a year, when they would make that, uh, that Jewish holiday, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, they'd take the blood, they'd bring it in. And one of the things, they would apply blood to each corner, each horn like that to make it holy and set apart. And as you walked into that holy place, that foyer, of the temple and the tabernacle, it was placed right before the veil. And the veil is that, if you remember a couple of Easter's ago, we try to mimic the veil up here, if you remember that. And so the veil was separating the holy place from the holiest of holies, right? And so if, if we're going back to our Calvary analogy, we are all right now in the holiest of holies, right? And none of us are dead yet, so that's always a good sign. If you walked into the holiest of holies in an unworthy manner, God would kill you. They used to tie bells around the high priest so if the jingle and stop, they just drag you out. So think about that when you sing jingle bells this Christmas. <laughs> Sorry. But there's that veil that would separate the holy place from the most, the holiest of holies. But right before that veil in the holy place in the foyer, that's where the altar of incense was. And why that's specific is because this was an outward uh, physical expression of a spiritual inward reality. What did that altar of incense, what did that incense burning and the smoke rising, what did that represent? What did God want Israel to have a physical, visible reminder of? Why why did the priest come in every morning and every evening? Why was it continuously burning? See, that smoke rising is a symbol of our prayer as God's people unto him. And it is to be burning continuously. So when you fast forward out of the Old Testament and into the New Testament, you go to First Thessalonians and you hear that we are to pray without ceasing. If you were speaking to a Jewish Christian, you could say, hey, we need to make sure our altar of incense doesn't go out. We need to be praying continuously unto the Lord. Now think about that. Where did the fire come from? The altar of sacrifice, which... Now not in the temple, what's the greatest altar of sacrifice? The cross. And we, instead of taking the blood of the sacrifice of an animal, we apply the blood of the lamb to us. And that's what sets us apart, makes us holy, as Luke was talking about. And so then if we are made holy, then just like you apply the blood to that altar of censer, or that golden altar, and the prayers rise up, then your prayers were holy. We apply the blood of Christ to us, and then now our prayers are made holy. And that's kind of hard, because sometimes we hear those verses in the New Testament. Jesus is saying, hey, whatever you pray in my name, I will surely do it. <laughs> Ferrari, in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Amen, right? But every morning I wake up and I look outside, it still says Ford. I'm like, we got the F, Lord, we're working on it. You know, maybe it's, it's progressive revelation of my new car. No, because if, if I haven't properly applied the blood to my life, if I haven't been changed and transformed, then neither will my prayer. And it's a hard truth, but it's a true reality that God does not hear all of our prayers. And I know that's gonna upset a few of you. And you're welcome. Because if we walk into the presence of God in an unworthy manner, he, that matters to him. And so we approach him. So when we pray those things in his name, it's because our hearts are aligned and transformed. That's the thing that Israel got wrong so easily. They thought it was about having the, the right altar and it all had to be set perfectly. They had to have the right incense and the right fire. And they would do this perfectly to the letter of the law, but they missed the heart so you can attend church and show up 15 minutes early every Sunday, get your coffee and your donut and shake some hands and maybe even sign up for a life group and attend that. You could serve on a team, you could do everything that is perfectly right for us and our faith, but our hearts can still be far from God. In Isaiah one, because of Israel's disobedience, God looks at them and says, your incense is an abomination to me that if we're really praying fully, God's heart, it's not about our will, it's not about my wants, but it's about him. See, this is what the altar of incense is to remind us and to think, and where's it at? Between the veil, the veil between us and our prayer approaching a holy God, and what's on the other side of the veil? The Ark of the Covenant, the place of God's presence. And what did Jesus do on the cross? It's a a very kind of obscure, unique little verse that's always kind of thrown in there, but that veil is torn to give us access through the blood of Jesus to the presence of God. So it's not that we cease to pray, But now we get to pray directly to the presence of God. And so when we are praying, are are our lives transformed and changed by the blood of Jesus? Are we set apart and made holy? Are we praying the things of God, not the things of Nick? Are we aligning our lives to him? Because there's a, a holy and a righteous way that this should be carried out. And again, our prayers must be kindled in that ultimate burnt offering, the cross of Jesus. And so the question, again, is, so why so much of Jewishness? Because that's the audience that he's speaking to. And, and, and for me, and my eschatology, I would believe that the church is going to be raptured up, as 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, as 1 uh, John 2, 2, the propitiation of Christ tells us that he fully suffered the wrath of God. And so we as the church are going to be taken up before the seven year starts. And there's some that believe that, no, we're going to live to the mid part. And at that three and a half year mark, then the church is going to be taken up. Mid-trib rapture is what that's called. Some believe that you're going to make it, you're going to live all the way through the whole tribulation. And then you're going to be raptured. That's called a post tribulation, rapture. And all I'm going to say is this. We can have absolute harmony. It's not a salvation issue. That is a place we can disagree, but do not allow it to divide us. So even though I hold to a pre-trib rapture and you might believe differently, all I'm going to say is you hope I'm right. (laughs) As we're studying (laughs) these events and we understand the fullness of God's wrath, you pray that I'm right. And then the the other joke is always, I just wish God would take us however we want to believe. If you want to be taken out before, come on. If you want to live through half of it, sure, we'll mid tribia. If you want to live through the whole thing, you know, you're going to be last to the party. But sure, we'll take you out in post tribia. But we have to understand why, and we get clues because why is this so Jewish? Because the church is taken apart, is taken not apart, taken up, and away, and is raptured out, and then God picks back up his dealing, his chosen people with Israel. And that's why, in, like if you read the gospels, if you read the church, like Acts and all that, we have very little prophecy given from the Old Testament about the church. It was a mystery to them. They, and not a mystery like something mystical, it was just not known at that time. But we actually have a lot when we study the Old Testament, the major and minor prophets, we have a lot that speaks of the tribulation because it's, it's the culmination, not just of God's history and how he wants to shore up human history, but it's Israel's history here. And so we see this very Jewish context to it. And so we even need to read Revelation, not from a Gentile perspective. It wasn't written for that because God's picking back up Israel, his chosen people, not his bride, his chosen people, and he's bringing out the fullness of it. And so one of the questions that we have to ask is, so what are these prayers that we see that are being offered up? Well, I think one key area, if you just turn one page over, is Revelation 6. When we're walking through the seven seals, the fifth seal says that I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. So these are the tribulation saints, but they're crying out with a loud voice, verse 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before will you, or yeah, how long before will you, you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Those who dwell on the earth. That's a key phrase. Remember that. We'll bring it up later. And so we see these tribulation saints crying out to the Lord. We hear these prayers. Lord, how long are you going to go until you do something to those that killed us for your word? We we put our faith and our trust in you and we are killed for it. Are you, is there ever gonna be some vengeance of the Lord? How long before that's gonna happen? So I think that's a part of the prayers that we see from this angel. Another part, I, I like Romans chapter eight, so if you want to turn there with me. Romans eight, right after Romans seven. It's kind of unique how it does that. Looking at verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation, not just the church, not just believers, but the whole creation, not even just people. I think even the earth is groaning and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit. Like we're given first fruits of the spirit. We understand the promise of that that we are gonna be the same resurrection that Jesus has, we will experience. That's a first fruits of the Spirit. And we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So every morning when we wake up and we look at ourselves in the mirror and you know a little more wrinkles, a little less hair, little, everything's getting a little more saggy. <laughs> it reveals to us our body is groaning, literally, sometimes it just hurts, you hear somebody get up and they're like, they're literally groaning, because we want the redemption of our bodies, that even this decaying process that we're in called aging is a testimony that it won't be like this, and our body groans for that. Even the other day, uh, my eight-year-old Emmy was sitting uh, right next to me on her chair. We're just sitting there rocking, watching TV, and she looks over and she goes, wow, you have a lot of ear hair. <laughs> Testifying to the groaning as the, as the outer man is wasting away, Paul would say, and growing hair everywhere. The inner man is being renewed, and our hope and our strength through Christ and so we see that this, there's this groaning in, in, our, in our prayer unto the Lord and then even think of the Lord's prayer, which is actually the disciples' prayer because Jesus knew how to pray. It was the disciples asking. Jesus, teaches us to pray. And what's like the second line that he says? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we love that prayer until we read Revelation and understand what a coming kingdom of God is gonna look like, what the coming will of God in heaven, the holiness and the righteousness of God, And, and how does that conflict with the sin and depravity that we see on earth, and that's a bold prayer to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and so we sit in the tension of this prayer. Do we sit in the tension of God's wrath and understanding that it is a refining fire that we look and we groan outward, like even the atheist groans outwardly, wanting vengeance and redemption, that he sees the suffering and the pain of this world. And, and a lot of times they shake their fist at God and say, how, how, how could God be loving and so cruel at the same time? Because they see something broken. But how do you see something evil or wrong without understanding what is right and what is good. So even in their articulation of, what, of seeing a broken world, they're testifying, groaning for something that is good and perfect. They're crying out for God. They're crying out for redemption. They just don't know the words to use. But inwardly, they feel it, they know something is wrong. And so we sit in that same tension as believers, that we want the wrath of God, that we pray, yes, like every time you click on the news and you see the crazy head, you know, news articles and the headlines that are going on, it's just like, how long, Lord? How long are you going to keep allowing the depravity? And Like how worse does it have to get before you step into something like that? We're, not that we're tribulation saints, but we're almost having that same kind of prayer. How long, Lord? Knowing that we're not destined for that. First Thessalonians is very clear. For God has not destined us for wrath. Right, We are not gonna endure the wrath of God whatsoever. We will be raptured out, but it says, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not just the salvation from our sin, but the punishment of our sin. That he saves us from the wrath of God and he saves us unto himself because he has not destined us for that wrath. Let's think of it this way. Husbands, got any husbands here? Look over at your wife. Look over at your wife right now. Give her a little wink, right? You can wink at your wife at church. It's better than somebody else winking at your wife at church, amen? <laughs> amen. Go ahead and wink out of there. Just, I'm trying to be a wingman, trying to help you out. Flirt with your wife a little bit. That's okay. That's what the Lord wants you to do. You love her, don't you? I see mine. I see you over there. Who here who loves his bride would beat her who here who loves his bride and cherishes her would drop her off in the most God-forsaken place and say, hey, if you can last for seven years, then we'll be together forever. See, that's the thought. If, If we really do believe that the bride of Christ, that if Jesus truly loves his bride, if we really do believe that we're going to go through the tribulation then you have to remove the scripture that says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church because that would not be love we are not destined for wrath but we sit in the tension of it that we see the brokenness of the world and we we are praying just as the end of revelation some of the last words that we're going to hear come lord Jesus my grandma used to say that all the time oh lord Jesus just come And we sit in that tension that we do. We want God to shore this up. Let's get the story going. But at the same time, we sit in the tension of God's wrath. We sit in the tension of God's heart for all people. And at the same time, we understand 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, even though it feels like slowness, doesn't it? It's like, how long, Lord? You kind of, you got to pick up the pace here. Like I I run a little quicker. I get things done a little quicker than you. And we think that, that the Lord, but he's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, as we sometimes count slowness. But he is patient toward you. And we have to understand the patience of the Lord. And he's patient towards us. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Repentance. So we sit in the tension of God's wrath, but also God's heart for all people. First Timothy two, three and four says, God our savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That we sit in the tension, yes, Lord, please come. Pour out your wrath on on the evil and the depravity that we see. Refine the world. You know, we understand the promises of Daniel that there'll be an end to sin, there'll be an everlasting righteousness, and we cannot wait for that. We eagerly wait for that. But at the same time, Lord, wait. Because I understand your heart for all people. And even though we want the return of the Lord, we ask, wait, why? Because there's people in our lives that do not know you, Jesus. There are people that do not have a saving relationship with you. And we know that once this roller coaster of a ride starts, we understand what they will have to live through. That even though we as the church are not destined for that, it is for those that have rejected Christ. And Lord, if you would just give us time to be the church, to keep sharing the gospel, and understanding that the command that you gave at the very end of Matthew is still valid to us today to go and make disciples, to baptize and to teach everything that you commanded and how to obey that and understand the promise that you are always with us. We sit in the tension of the wrath of God and also at the same time, the heart of God. And they're not two conflicting things, but we see that they beautifully fit together. That God is always grace, mercy, love for righteousness, holiness, for obedience to him, and at the same time, he will always pour out his wrath on evil. He is the Lord, he does not change, and we sit in the tension of that. Brings a little more depth to the altar of incense and what our prayers should be, and so from there, he moves us, John, into the story, and we see the first four trumpets, and what we have to understand are these are all very supernatural again, we as the church, we're not living in the tribulation right now. Those events have not started, so we don't need to look even though there's fires in Maui and there's hurricanes and there's tsunamis and there's floods and there's droughts and we're not looking at natural events and thinking, is this it? Is this, uh, did we miss something? Is that it? No. These will be very supernatural that no one will be able to say, oh yeah, that just happens every once, every thousand years. It's a hundred year flood. No, no, no. These are very supernatural. Again, very orchestrated. And we see the sovereign, powerful hand of God being poured out. And so the first trumpet is a hail fire mixed with blood. We understand that the trees and a third of the trees and all the grass is going to be burned up. What's that mean? A third of the food supply will be gone. Nick, there's already great areas with famine and there will be more. And even as we looked at the seals, we understood that there would be great famines and and some of these cosmic disturbances that would attack a food supply. And even at that, the commodity prices are gonna go up. And we're not talking like a couple more cents per gallon of gas or man milk's up to and the eggs are really $3 for eggs. Like everybody went out and bought chickens we're talking to a divine move of God that's going to impact a third of the food supply. And then the second trumpet is a burning mountain thrown in the sea. The seas are going to be turned to blood. One third of the sea living creatures, which is a lot, are going to be gone. And all the ships, the transporting uh, industry, a third of that gone. Like your, your Amazon Prime next day delivery, probably not gonna happen. <laughs> that already makes us feel like we're being persecuted, right? It's the wrath of God, two day shipping. <laughs> Remember when you used to order in the magazine, it'd be like six to eight weeks. <laughs> I didn't even know what I ordered six to eight weeks ago. <laughs> then the third trumpet, a star will fall and it'll hit the rivers and the springs and it has a name called Wormwood. And in it, Wormwood, it's a bitter substance, and so it's a symbol for bitterness and s- sadness. It's where we get the word absinthe from, meaning undrinkable. I mean, one of, the, one of the ministries we support as Calvary Chapel, if you walk into the cafe there, you'll see the like, bucket with this weird little filter, and it's, its fil- filters of hope. That one of the leading causes of death in children globally, a lack of access to clean drinking water. To the tune of like 30,000 kids every day. And then whatever this, again, figurative, literal symbolism, something's going to hit and cause a third of the clean drinking water to be bitter and to be made undrinkable. And then the fourth trumpet, the sun, moon, and the stars are going to be hit. There's going to be an increased darkness. and We could all joke and be like, I'm not afraid of the dark. <laughs> yeah, you are. When it's divinely orchestrated, that it's a it's a visible representation that we that they will endure and, and sense not just a darkness physically but a darkness spiritually that will be this increased darkness. Like we we had a hint of it. So if you want to turn with me, Matthew chapter 24. If you remember a couple weeks ago. We kind of opened up Matthew 24 at the same time, reading Revelation. We, and this is Jesus talking to his disciples. His disciples asked, said, hey, tell us, when will these things be? When will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? That's why we skipped kind of over the whole church. He's like, oh, okay, I'll tell you, because it's a very Jewish type of thing that we'll talk about. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Again, we won't be confused. Anybody that has to live through the tribulation, they won't be like, is this it? Is this what those Christians were talking about? No, they will know. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved, but for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And so we see, not like that a 24 hour is gonna be taken down, but we see this increased darkness. There'll be a shortening of daylights. And again, we can go back to the Old Testament. So if you wanna go to Amos, Amos speaks of this, so Hosea, Joel, Amos, chapter five, sorry, chapter eight, one more page. Verse nine, and on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight on that day. What day is he talking about? The day of the Lord where we think it's a 24-hour period. When you hear the day of the Lord, it's this whole campaign of events. It's what we are walking through right now. So on that day, declares the Lord, I'm gonna make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And so we see this one-third, right? So when we were in the seals, church is raptured out, and we have a fourth of everything was taken out. A fourth, a fourth, a fourth, even of mankind. A fourth of the world's population will be killed in the seals, and then here we have a third, to which we will read in the next chapter next week that a third of the human population will be killed in the trumpets. And this is the first part of the tribulation. This is in the first three and a half years. At the seventh trumpet, that's what starts. That's where the Antichrist will break his covenant with the Jews. And then it's literal hell on earth. And so a fourth in the seals, a fourth, and then a third in the trumpets. Again, allow that silence to impact our heart and to our mind and to understand these aren't mythical events, but this is real human history that God has given us revelation to understand. But again, one of the issues we could have is if we overly focus on the minority, if we overly focus on the destruction, we're gonna, and and at times use that to look back at God, that's where that question comes up. How can we have just such a merciful, loving God, but all of this suffering and destruction, like why would God allow all of this? It's actually what we're, I think it's gonna be the fourth week of our apologetics class on Tuesday mornings that we're gonna answer, so if you're able to come out for that. But one-third speaks of God's restrictions. Because again, God could absolutely bring all the seals, all the trumpets, all the bowls, decimate the entire world, and he would not lose any aspect of his character. He would still be just and righteous and holy. But he restricts himself. In the seals, he only attacks a third. He only pours out, or a fourth. And then in the trumpets, he only pours out a third upon them. And so we see this as an evidence of his mercy And then if you go to verse 13, back to Revelation 8, it says, then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Again, why? Because we have three more trumpets. So woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And here's a key little part. Do you see that line again? Those who dwell on the earth. We read that before. We as the church are never called earth dwellers. We as the church are never called those who dwell upon the earth. No, 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 Philippians 3 is clear. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are not called earth dwellers. Even even the tribulation saints, how long before until you carry out your vengeance on those who dwell on the earth? It's speaking of those that have rejected Christ and salvation in Him and Him alone. So, why such warning? Because in the next three trumpets, we see again each wave, the intensity and the severity of God's wrath is increasing. But we also see the mercy of God that He only affects a third of it a third of the rivers, a third of the food, a third of the people. So in the first four trumpets, it reveals the mercy of God. At the same time, we see that wrath of God being poured out. And these these partial judgments are striking only a third. Why? Because they're meant to lead a rebellious world to repentance before that final curtain that God is sparing far more than he is smiting in this time. He's only smiting a third. Why? Because he wants to spare two-thirds. And we'll read at the end of Revelation 9 where it says that they won't repent. But that's a matter of their will, not a matter of their opportunity. That God is pouring out, yes, his wrath on a third, but at the same time, in the greater, he's pouring out his mercy to two-thirds. That he's restricting that to show his mercy, because why? He's the same God that we read about when we're back in 2 Peter and 1 Timothy, that he wants all people to reach repentance, that he wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And so we as a church, we hold fast to the call and the command upon us. So One of the things we said, I think last week or the week before, the gospel was never meant to stop at us, but to flow through us. And even though we sit in that tension and we see the evil and we could ask ourselves, Lord, why don't you do anything? Because at the same time, people are coming to a saving relationship with him. It's kind of the same way that I will never, and I will kick you out of my church, assign anybody to stand at the front door and say, sorry, we're too full today. You need to go down the street. That is not our heart. Because a lot of times we can, you can have that. You know, the church is getting kind of full. Like, I, I, you've heard testimony of churches saying that, like, enough is enough. Like, how many more people? I mean, it's like, are you really saying that? Like, oh, the problem we have, so many people want to come to church on Sunday. We got to fix this, right? We got to thin the herd down a little bit. No. Because where were you when you wanted to find a church home that you could plug in and find community and find hope? Imagine you in that brokenness and somebody stands at the door and says, sorry, no vacancy, we're too full today. That will never happen at Calvary Chapel, at least as long as I'm still the pastor. Because when I was in my brokenness, far from God, searching and looking for hope, I was accepted and welcomed in. And so God, even in my life, we see the same mercy, the same sparing, because he's the same God. So whatever he does in the tribulation, it's the same God that we serve today in the church. And so we have to look at our lives and ask, where has he provided and not smite our lives, but he's sparing in our lives, that he's giving us opportunity and space and a moment to possibly come to him in salvation. In a room this size, those watching online upstairs in the loft. That maybe just like the Israelites with the uh, golden censer, the golden altar of incense, you've been doing everything right, perfectly to the letter of the law. But the Lord would look at you and say, I never knew you because your heart is not near him. See, his mercies are new every morning that as we woke up and took breath into our life, we took in the mercy of God that he provided us another opportunity for salvation or another opportunity for repentance. That maybe for us, that there's something that we're dealing with, it's something that we're fighting and struggling with, and it's that secret sin that we don't want anybody to know about. Understand that God is sparing you. He is providing you opportunity to turn to him in repentance, to turn to him in confession. It's actually what today is for the 21 days of impact. Whom do I need to confess to? And confession's hard, right? Confession, good for the soul, bad for the reputation. But what's worst for the soul is to keep trying to fight that sin and allowing those chains to hold you but walk in newness of life that we have in Christ. Understand the mercy of God this morning to allow us to be spared to walk in righteousness with him. And then lastly, why is God waiting? Why are we patiently enduring? Because there's people in our lives that do not have a relationship with him. And the command and the call upon the church is still valid. No matter how much of revelation that we study, it'll never take away the call for the church to be the hands and the feet of Jesus and to share the hope that we have, being ready to make a defense for the hope. And we do it with gentleness. We do it with respect. We don't beat people over the head with the Bible, but we invite them into a relationship with Christ. That there's probably someone And I hope the Lord is just absolutely grabbing a hold of your heart and your mind right now of someone that you need to talk to. Just like what Sammy said in her video. Hey, this is the season I'm in, I'm a stay at home mom. Rock on girl, good luck. All you stay at home moms, we're praying for you, right? Pray for the teachers that have all those kids, no. Pray for the ones that stay home with the kids as well. Whatever season of life we're in, whatever position we have, whatever, all those are platforms for the gospel. And he is sparing, he is allowing space within his grace and his mercy. And the call and the command is still upon us to go and to share and to serve and to teach and to love. Be the hands and the feet of Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we love you, we trust you, Lord. We just thank you for this morning as we drink deeply from your word. Lord, some of this is hard to think through, hard to fathom what your wrath will look like poured out. And we just hold fast to the promise that we know we are not destined for this because we are predestined to be adopted as sons and to be co-heirs and be with you around the throne. And so we hold fast to those promises. And at the same time, in that same tension, Lord, use us. Let us be focused on the call and the command that you have for us as the church. That in gentleness and respect, we continue to share the hope that we have found in you, Jesus. So lead us, guide us, use us, that we would be useful vessels in your hands. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said,